1: We are about to break the surly bonds of gravity and punch the face of God. I wish I was a bit taller, Left Jab I Productions wish I was a baller, present I I Edge of good, radio, Sports
2: Radio, where sports and politics collide. And now, your host, Dave
1: Zirin. The
3: Schmada Kid. Boom! Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. I'm Dave Zirin, joined as always by a man who is an NFL Combine Warrior, a Combine All-Pro, but you get him off the box, not looking so good. Dan Baker, DB, the Mike Mamela of Sirius XM. How you doing, sir? Was... Just wait
0: till you check out my WonderLick scores.
3: <laughs> oh, 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 Mike, my. nicely put, Dan. Um, never use the phrase Wonderlick again. Uh, and joined by Mr. Coach Kevin Not How you doing, Coach?
2: Dave? Breaking news. What's that, sir? Another three-pointer was hoisted up in the NBA All-Star game, which had no defense at all. This is getting ridiculous.
3: Getting ridiculous. Just feeling bad about the NBA All-Star game, Coach. Terrible. That's what plagues you <laughs> in your dark moments. <laughs> that's the biggest
2: thing. That's what's grinding your gears. <laughs> you want to talk North Carolina Duke? I mean, you know. <laughs> Yeah, we can
3: talk about that, too. <laughs> yeah. A very good game last night. Yep. We can talk about why. Uh, and me, Mark Bauer. How you doing, me, Mark? I'm doing great.
0: I feel like we're we're entering the time. I can talk about the draft, but I, I feel like I'm out of my
3: <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, We might not have had audio from Mark, but I heard you, Mark. We got a hell of a show this week. I'm excited because this week we have on a newsbreaker. uh, Grant Wall, Sports Illustrated, longtime soccer writer, as well as uh, someone who is doing soccer commentary for Fox Sports. It was Grant Wall who broke the news that the 2022 World Cup in Cotter is going to be played in November and December. Now, look, this is seismic. I mean, seriously. Like, imagine the World Series being played in May. Imagine... Uh, The the Super Bowl being played in August, it's a big deal that they're moving the World Cup to November and December, and it has a ton of implications across the board of like what's going to happen. Gee, I don't know to like the English Premier League, to MLS, uh, what's going to happen in terms of whether or not there's any capacity to move the World Cup from Qatar because of its human rights violations um, of Nepalese uh, migrant workers. I mean, so we're going to talk to Grant Wall about all this stuff. And about the possibilities of an MLS lockout slash strike. But you know what else we're going to talk about? We're going to talk to our friend Richard Kent about some happenings in college basketball, particularly over at UConn, where they're winning games by 60 points these days. Mm. But when we get back from the break, I want to talk to you guys about one of my favorite conversation topics, and that's Mr. Kevin Durant.
1: We'll be back after this. Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide.
3: Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio. It's joined by the coach, Kevin McNutt. How you doing, coach? Mommy. And me, Mark. How you doing, me, Mark? I have a voice. <laughs> yes, you do, sir. <laughs> now use it to sing. <laughs> Look, we, we had quite the all-star weekend in New York City. So much to discuss. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the absolute narcotic love affair taking place uh, between uh, the world and the Golden State Warriors and the Atlanta Hawks. The uh, incredible amount of good that Steph Curry did by Honoring Dea Barakat, one of the people killed in the Chapel Hill murders. But the story that I want to discuss, other than the insane hyper commercialization of every single event. I mean, there was like the the, the the sprite U.S. Army, fifty shades of gray, three point shootout. I mean it was a little <laughs> it was a little intense how much branding there was during All Star Weekend. But what was interesting to me, one part of it, was the imposition of of someone who's been an afterthought, largely, this NBA season. The person who's—it's unbelievable. The reigning MVP of the National Basketball Association, uh, the DMV zone, Kevin Durant, Mm -hmm. he missed about half of the first half of the season. It was controversial about whether or not he should be even named to the All-Star team because of that. And the team themselves, the Oklahoma City Thunder, are going to have to go on a run to even make the playoffs in the Western Conference, let alone have prime position In the Western Conference and Kevin Durant held a press conference and he really imposed himself on the weekend that's the only way to do it I mean this Kevin Durant is someone who scored three points in the all-star game he didn't take part in any of the events yet he became one of the central storylines coming out of it by saying to the press you guys really don't know bleep Uh, this is Kevin Durant talking and no I'm not gonna do an actual impression (laughs) Um, which is for the best uh, he said so I don't really I, don't, I really don't care y'all are not my friends you're gonna write what you wanna write you're gonna love us one day and hate us the next that's part of it so I just learned how to deal with y'all and then he said my first years in the league i was just finding myself i think most of the time i reacted based off what everybody else wanted and how they viewed me as a person i'm just learning to be myself not worrying about what everyone else everybody else says i'm going to make mistakes i just want to show kids out here that athletes entertainers whoever so-called celebrities we aren't robots we go through emotions and go through feelings and i'm just trying to express mine to try to help people along the way I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm just this guy that is programmed to say the right stuff all the time and politically correct answers I'm done with that I'm just trying to be me and continue to grow as a man now this is very interesting to me like Kevin Durant deciding he's going to go to war with the media and it's interesting to me for a couple reasons I'm curious what your guys thoughts are first of all because used to be an athlete if they said something like this I mean, my my antenna would go up in a major way. Mm -hmm. But there's something about it now, especially, the only way I can describe it is in our post-Marshawn Lynch era, Mm -hmm. where it almost feels like this is now the 2015 equivalent of saying, well, we play one game at a time, good Lord willing, play one game at a time, play 150%. That part of being an athlete right now is you lash out against the media. And almost like it's in the kit of what we expect an athlete to do. And, and that just makes me just feel a little bit like raise an eyebrow a little bit at this whole thing. And I'll tell you why else it makes me raise an eyebrow. Because normally, anytime an athlete speaks out, I've got my pom-poms. I'm going, woo-hoo, you know, you know talk out against the media. I'm like, yeah. But this just give, gives me a lot of pause for, for a couple of reasons. So that, that's the first one, is that it feels like I've heard this song before. Why is Kevin Durant uh, singing someone else's tune? The second part, is that here's Kevin Durant, who a lot of us here in DC are hoping, praying, lighting Mm -hmm. candles for him Mm -hmm. to come to Washington DC, which is one of the more claustrophobic media environments in the United States. And he's in Oklahoma City where there's one paper and that paper is owned by a family member of the owner of the Thunder. Mm. And so if you're having trouble with the media and you're dealing with the Daily Oklahoman, I mean, what's it gonna be like when you're dealing with the Washington, D.C. media or a big city media. That's the other thing. It's like, wow, is the heat really that much on Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City? That was the second thing that just made me sort of go, huh. And the third thing that made me go, huh, is that we are dealing with, over the last generation, um over the last six months, I should say, an unprecedented generational shift among NBA players speaking out about politics, namely aligning themselves with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, standing up against police violence. And in the wake of athletes like really risking their brand appeal, uh, risking incurring the wrath of fans, uh, risking being seen as maybe even expendable on an NBA roster because they're troublemakers or what have you. Uh, obviously, that wouldn't affect LeBron, who's been part of this. But someone like Jarrett Jack, yeah, that's a real risk. If you're Jarrett Jack and you're like, I'm going to stand up against police brutality. This feels like kind of weak sauce. <laughs> I hate the media. <laughs> I mean, it's like people are saying things a lot more daring and a lot more interesting and a lot more political than I hate the media. Now that does, And then there's the part that's also a little bit makes me feel squeamish is that Part of Kevin Durant's latest like shoe commercial rollout is about him being like much more of a of a badass than people think. And like this kind of no more Mr. Nice guy thing. And I'm not saying it's that calculated. I'm just saying, like, dude, come on. And apparently, like yesterday he apologized to the media for what he had said over All Star Weekend. And it, it all leaves me a little bit confused because Kevin Durant, best certainly the best Uh, volume shooter of my generation and thinking about him he's now been in the league eight years Mm -hmm. no rings locked and loaded Western Conference coming off the first real serious injury of his career where's he going? what's happening?
2: where's he going in terms of what?
3: career legacy life i know it's a little early to start talking about that but it's also just like you're on this team the oklahoma city thunder which has this bizarre model for trying to organize a championship team you know develop talent from within until it's time to dump them james Harden now reggie jackson Mm -hmm. uh, on the trading block so it's like where is this really gonna go and coach i'll just what what are your thoughts about durant and the rant
2: uh, I think it could be a lot of just frustration. I mean you, you spoke about the injuries uh, he's been hurt. Uh, there was a uh, there was some say that this was off of the um, criticism of his coach. Um, yeah, so maybe you know a lot's going on frustration they're fighting for the what, the ninth tenth spot trying to get to eight, hopefully seven which is gonna be Memphis. Uh, or Golden State, so it could be a lot of frustration. But he's young. I mean, he's not in his prime yet. That's my man. I, I know Kevin. I've ref Kevin. He's he, I've coached him in summer league, so I'm a fan. So I, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to say anything uh, outside of maybe just frustration and just bored over, and he you know he's coming into his own. He can say what he feels.
3: Well, let's just talk about him though as a player for a second, because uh, you said he's not in his prime yet, and it's very difficult now with the star players being one and done. Mm-hmm. Like how you judge when a player, it, like when the, when the clay sets, so to speak, like when a player just is who he or she is. Mm-hmm. And in Kevin Durant's case, it's like on the one hand, it's like, gee, he's young, he's 26. But then it's like on the other hand, he's been playing eight years yeah. in the NBA. Now this is eighth season. So there's always been talk about how Kevin Durant's going to develop to be like a much more effective passer and rebounder, and he has relative to his rookie season without question. Mm-hmm. But are we at the ceiling? Of Kevin Durant's absolutely game, in your not. opinion,
2: absolutely not. He's improving every time I see him. Uh, uh, he's getting better, better defender, better rebounding, seeing the floor better. He's he's added a whole lot to his game. He was just a shooter when he came in. Now he can beat you off the dribble. He can he can get to the rack all the way. His game is still spanning. I see plenty of upside. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm prejudiced. That's my man.
3: And I have to say like i 've got tons of kind of like self interest in wanting to see him develop, wanting to see him <laughs> succeed, not wanting him to sort of Eat himself alive in frustration based on what's happening
2: there because I want him to come here. He's never been hurt, and that's the biggest thing yeah. that we said about Derek Rose when, yeah. when his frustration last year in the comments he made. Everyone, what, what is that all about? He's never been hurt. These guys have been stars since uh, nine years old mm-hmm. and uh, always, always owned the owned, owned the league or any sport they played. Now he's dealing with injuries. First time in his life that he's had this. You remember he played around the clock around you know. True. Uh, the all-star games olympics everything and now he's gotten hurt he's had to sit and watch team's losing his coach is taking heat frustration just added he'll be fine he'll and, and, and
3: deon waiters wasn't the solution
2: to all that his was problems that a bum <laughs> move just bum shocking. move
3: I, I mean he's the solution f- to all my problems <laughs> <laughs> my entertainment problems hey we got to go to break we'll be back right after this with richard kent one, one two
1: three, don't one, Move. Dave Zyron will be right back with more Edge of Sports Radio. You're more than alright. You know you're out of sight. Dave Zyron returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide.
3: We are back here on Edge of Sports Radio, joined by the coach. Coming out, how you doing, coach? Mommy. And me, Mark. How you doing, me, Mark? Well, we are at that time of year when we want to start talking about college hoops. Yes, it's been going on since uh, late October, early November. No, I haven't noticed until now. And looking up, trying to figure out what's happening, getting ready for March, the person I want to talk to is the man we have on the line, Richard Kent. Richard, how you doing, sir? Good, Dave. How are you? Doing well, doing well. First and foremost, I ask you this because we always talk about uh, UConn uh, Huskies, the the women's team at UConn. Uh, They just won a game against Houston by 59 points. Uh, They haven't committed a foul in an insane amount of time, and they're they're on pace for a record for fewest fouls committed in a season. They have one loss on the year. They're riding something like a 25-game winning streak. All right, so I ask you this. What is the gap right now between UConn and the rest of women's hoops?
4: First of all, I had uh, Houston plus sixty points, so I was really quite <laughs> excited about that game. I got well done. to tell you that. <laughs> but in any event, the gap is so gaping right now that uh, it's just really tragic for women's basketball. There's nobody on the uh, in the game right now that can come within ten points of them. I think the South Carolina game proved that. I feel and I always felt that Gino was happy uh, or at least not dissatisfied with the November loss to Stanford. It was a wake-up call for his team, and maybe Baylor could come within uh, 10 of them, but nobody else.
3: And it raises this question, and you've, we've heard this debate for years, like, is it good or bad for women's hoops to have the Huskies this dominant? And most of the time, the answer is usually something like, well, why is it bad? Don't we want to see the game played at its highest level? Uh, don't, w- we, would we say this about, say, the, the Yankees of the late 90s, for example? I mean, it's like, our dynasty, aren't dynasties supposed to be good for sports? But the qualitative difference, I mean, when you can beat a team by 59, when you don't have to commit fouls and still hold a team to 26 points, I mean, so I, let's revisit this question, good or bad for women's hoops?
4: You know, you talk about the Yankees of the late 90s, you talk about UCLA, the stands were filled with people. Take a look at the XL Center, take a look at Gamble, take a look at the first two rounds of the Women's NCAA Tournament, which will be at Gamble, and people just aren't there. And that's at UConn. That would tell you that it's not good for the game at UConn. People at UConn loved the Rutgers series when they split six games. They loved the Notre Dame series when Notre Dame won three games in a row. Right now, it's no contest. And, unfortunately, uh, I think it's no contest next year with Brianna Stewart and Mariah Jefferson both coming back. And Kia Nurse. Is probably the best freshman in the country.
3: It raises maybe the most interesting question we can ask about UConn, which is how much of this is a generational institution that has the capacity to last beyond Gino Oriema, or how much of this is just Gino?
4: I say that two years after Gino retires, and I will say that they will still be in the AAC. Uh, they may not be a top-20 team. Top-20 team? Right. That conference is so bad, and he is such a good coach, that the confluence of him leaving and being in that conference, and I think UConn football is just going to hold them back from getting into the ACC. I see Cincinnati probably getting into the Big 12 before UConn gets into the ACC.
3: Mm. So you're saying, and and how much longer do you see Gino coaching? I mean, T leaves based on some cryptic comments he's made. You get the feeling that it's closer to the end at this point. I mean, we can have a serious discussion about when this would be and who he would hand it off to.
4: I've heard from some writers probably in five years uh, that would not give him the opportunity to coach Monet Davis, (laughs) who who, uh, really wants to play at UConn. Uh, But, you know, he certainly coached. He coached Tarasi, coached Byrd, he coached Maya Moore. So he certainly coached some great ones. But I don't think he's going to stay much much longer than that. And certainly, if he's – and by the way, there's teams that won't play him. The Duke series ended this year, and they're not going to play them again. Uh, North Carolina doesn't play them. Uh, Obviously, Tennessee doesn't play them. And I've got a feeling that we're going to see more and more schools not playing them. Now, is it going to hurt him? No, because he's so good as a coach, so good as a recruiter. Uh, but I really think it could hurt the next coach. And I think the next coach is going to be either Shea Ralph, the former star in all America, sure. or Jen Rizzotti, uh, who was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 1996 when she uh, stole the ball from Michelle Marciniak of Tennessee.
3: Wow. So, yeah, very much keeping it um in the UConn family. Okay. So we're talking about the, the seismic chasm between UConn and the rest of women's basketball. Let's flip it to the men's for a second. Uh, what kind of gap do you see between Kentucky and the rest of the men's
4: field at this point? I don't see much of a gap. I mean, they've. I think the worst thing for Kentucky is not losing one of those two or three point games that they won. I think they would have been better served, you know, maybe in late January, losing one of those games, you know, at Tennessee, let's say, and not having to worry about the streak, which is now the longest streak in Kentucky history, in addition to winning the national championship. Mm. I think I, I, I will go on record now as saying that there is no team in the country that is going to beat the UConn women. I think that there's uh, five teams they can beat Kentucky in the NCAA tournament.
3: If you had to bet Kentucky or the field in the men's tournament, what do you bet? Field. And uh, when we talk about who in the field could do it, I mean, there's a lot of local bias because I'm here in Washington, D.C. area, but people are getting very, very hyped about the University of Virginia. What do you think about their prospects to possibly be one of those teams?
4: I think, I think that Bennett is a fabulous defensive coach. I mean, there's, there's, some ridiculous scores this year. Rutgers scored eight points in the second half against them. Uh, He beat what I think is a really good Harvard team. Uh, I think it was 66-27 to was the score. Uh, So I think if Virginia can control tempo and they can hit some threes uh, and they don't have to worry about offensive rebounding. You see, they're not very big, Virginia, and that's a problem against Kentucky because Kentucky – has size but i I do think i put virginia and wisconsin uh in the same league with respect to beating kentucky because i think they both uh bennett and bo ryan are both coaches that control tempo and remember when wisconsin when and if wisconsin plays kentucky they'll have the best player on the floor in frank kaminsky Mm.
3: well you think frank kaminsky is better than anybody on kentucky Yes. Even in the
2: Harrisons, okay. That's a stretch in my imagination.
4: No, he's a senior. He's a, I mean, is Is he? Is he? will he be a better NBA player, you know, in the long run than anybody in Kentucky? No, right now, though. You know, as a senior, as a veteran of the college wars, uh, I think I'd rather have him in the last minute of an NCAA game than anybody in Kentucky. Uh, and by the way, I love Sam Decker also. And also,
3: just real quick, you um, made a brief mention to one of the Ivy teams. It seems like the men's Ivies are just loaded for bear this year. The question is, could we be seeing multiple Ivy teams make the tournament this year? And why do you think that that gap has closed between the traditional powers and the Ivies?
4: I think Tommy Amaker coming to Harvard and Harvard opening up The admissions office and letting two or three basketball players, additional basketball players in a year, has really forced the hands of some other universities. And this year, uh, first of all, there's been a a huge shift. Obviously, Princeton and Penn controlled the Ivies for at least 17 straight years. Uh, I think Cornell won it once Mm -hmm. during those years, and now it's Harvard and Yale. Uh, Unfortunately, Yale lost a double overtime game to Vanderbilt. Uh, They did beat UConn. But if they had played a little bit tougher schedule, uh, and if they lose to Harvard in the March, I think, 7th game for the Ivy League Championship, I think they could have gotten a bid in addition to Harvard, which would have been a first. But I think they'll be relegated probably to the NIT, and and you can take a close look at them in the NIT because they can win the NIT. Coach, we've got to give mention to the other undefeated team in the country this year, and that is the Princeton women. And I've seen the Princeton women play. And I've heard that the NCAA may play some tricks and put the Princeton women in the Maryland bracket in College Park. Mm. Uh, I mean, at the Maryland campus. And the reason for that is, and I'm going to throw that to you, Dave, why would they do that?
3: Gee, uh... <laughs> I imagine to give uh the Maryland women's team uh greater opportunity to
4: advance. So, in order to bring two people from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue
3: oh, into the. Interesting. <laughs> of course, because of Princeton, there's there's some connections there. Uh Yeah, no,
4: but this is the sixth man for Princeton. Yeah,
3: this is very very interesting <laughs> indeed. Coach, you had one last question for Richard. We got one minute yeah. left.
2: Real quick, Richard, give me give me your final four and a team that would that you project to be a six seven seed uh, or or lower that can sneak into the final four.
4: I love Gonzaga, Virginia, Kentucky, and
2: Wisconsin. No Duke, huh? Not
4: a huge fan of Duke. Mm-hmm. I think that. Uh, I think that Michigan State right now Is playing as well as any team in the country For one more sleeper, Arizona State Ooh. Mm. Hey,
3: Richard Kent As always, thank you so much for joining us Let's get you on again after the brackets come out Sound good?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I know you just discovered college basketball yep. But football, by the way Just so you know <laughs> Yeah,
3: <laughs> No, I'm happy to discover it My God, I don't know how everybody follows All these sporting things that are going on out here <laughs> A lot going on in this world. Hey, thank you so much, Richard Kent. We'll be back right after this with Grant
1: Wall. Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this.
5: Multiple sources are telling me it's now a done deal that World Cup 22 will take place in November and December of 22 in Qatar.
1: You're listening to Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. Wow, the World
3: Cup in November and December of 2022. My mind is blown. Uh, The voice you just heard was that of Sports Illustrated. Uh, uh, Journalist, senior writer, editor, uh, author of numerous books, uh, Grant Wall. Fortunately, we have him to actually ask him about the implications of a November-December World Cup. So happy to have him on the show. Grant, are you there, sir?
5: I'm here, Dave. How are you?
3: Honestly, my mind's a little bit blown (laughs) (laughs) by by your scoop here. I mean, please just talk to us a little bit. I mean, what are the implications of having a World Cup in November and December?
5: Well, it's never been done before and the World Cup has a very specific place in the schedule uh, over the decades uh, and that is June and July of the year and uh, that's when they can fit it in to a very, very busy global soccer calendar. you know, Soccer right. is a year-round sport. It really never stops. There's always something going on. Uh, and so uh, this is going to create a lot of issues just scheduling-wise uh, for the European uh, club leagues, uh, but for everyone around the world. They're going to have to move around a lot of things for this. And there's soccer terms, obviously, to talk about with the implications of this, uh, as you well know, there's also big questions about whether this World Cup should be taking place in Qatar at all, mm-hmm. uh, for a number of different reasons. They've now removed the heat reason uh, because the temperatures will actually be pretty workable in November, December, uh, you know, for that World that, Cup.
3: Yeah, that, that actually but, was, was one of my questions. Is like, does this move end the discussion about whether or not the World Cup is going to move out of Qatar? And is that really what, what this is about, as a way to just squelch that debate, squelch those rumblings once and for all?
5: Well, what we've seen over the past year and a half or so is the very slow machinery of FIFA move along and, and these decisions get made. And so, you know, there was a big investigation into all the World Cup bids uh, by FIFA uh, for 2018 and 2022. Michael Garcia was in charge as the top investigator. Uh, Guy who you know lives in New York, and uh, his report uh, was submitted to FIFA. A summary of his report was put out publicly. There's a big controversy over whether all of it should be printed and uh, and put out publicly. In fact, he became very disillusioned and resigned himself, Garcia, because he thought FIFA was shady. Um, But the gist of which was there was no smoking gun in Qatar's bid or Russia's bid, for that matter, for 2018, even though. It wasn't a great investigation. There's no subpoena power. Uh, The Russians basically said, the dog ate our homework. We threw away all our computers. You know, the Qataris weren't found to have anything that would cause them to lose the World Cup. So once that happened, we knew from, in FIFA terms at least, they weren't going to move the World Cup from Qatar. Now, then the question became, when would it take place? And for several months now, the bladder has said, I prefer November, December. The European clubs were saying May, June. Well, it appears that St. Blatter has won that battle, and now we're headed toward November, December.
3: Now, if Roger Goodell said, I've seen the future and it's an April Super Bowl, the rebellion wouldn't just be about the change of the calendar. People would say that he's taking an axe to something that culturally is very precious. Same if Rob Manfred said, you know, the World Series would be so much more fun in December. I mean, there would be a, a kind of a cultural backlash. Do you think we're going to see a... Cultural backlash, people saying this is just not the World Cup, or do you think people are gonna get in line pretty quick with this?
5: I I don't know the answer to that to be honest, you know. I know that people here in the US, you know, the World Cup has become a big time event in the US Mm -hmm. only really in the last decade. So we're very much accustomed to this being a summer event, a a June, July event. And part of the reason that the World Cup has become a big time event here is because there's no other real competition in the US sports calendar that time of year. Not many other sports are going on, and a lot of people get drawn into the drama of the World Cup. Now, will that happen with a World Cup taking place in November and December when you've got the NFL, you've got college football, you've got other leagues uh, going on, and and will that... You know, people only have so much time they can devote to watching sports in America, so uh, it it remains to be seen if, if the World Cup will take a real hit in the U.S. because of that.
3: Wow. And, and it's interesting because um, the, the, the country that sent the most people to Brazil to hang out and watch the games was the United States of America. And one reason for that was because it was summer. And this, the, I mean, when I was there, and I'm sure you saw it when you were there too, tons of college students, grad students mm-hmm. taking advantage of the summer off to, you know, by hook or by crook, making a pilgrimage to go down to Brazil and just hang out, even if they didn't have tickets to games. Uh, and so you could, you to, will that, be da- How much will that be damaged? And do you think that'll hurt soccer culture in the United States?
5: I think it will to an extent, because you're going to have you know, college students. There are a lot of college students down in Brazil, oh, yeah. and young professionals on their summer vacations this past year. And that's going to be harder to do, I think, in November and December. You're going to have kids, younger kids, who you know, would be on summer vacation would be able to watch the entire World Cup on television and fall in love with the sport. That's going to be really, you know, a lot harder now uh, if it's November, December. So, um, you know, that's really unfortunate because the World Cup is clearly the big instigator of the growth of the sport mm-hmm. in America, and and the, it's it's super high right now. You know, the the TV rights in the United States are the highest for any country in the world for the World Cup. As you mentioned, the most tickets for the World Cup get bought from the United States. Um, you know, aside from the host country, mm-hmm. so. Uh, it's it's a huge, huge thing with a, a big impact on the
3: U.S., obviously. I, I gotta ask you, we're talking to Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated. I, you're the only person I really want to ask this question, because I think you have a, a great perspective, both from uh, what people in FIFA are saying and also the, the global perspective. Qatar, this is the, what keeps going through my head, Grant. Qatar it seems like a hell of a hill to die on. And <laughs> FIFA has put so much of its cultural capital, financial capital, political capital into making this happen why is FIFA so invested in all these different ways in making a Qatar World Cup a reality
5: well it's a great question you know and and I think part of it is uh, the fear that uh, this you know Qatar could sue them uh, if if they (laughs) move the World Cup away from them Uh, I think that there is an international prestige element here um, you know, I, I think you look at uh, the way that Qatar was chosen, they haven't found, at least FIFA hasn't in their investigation, any smoking guns to say it was actually done improperly. And, and to be honest, it was FIFA's fault they set up such a, a framework where there weren't really many rules for the bidding process that allowed a lot of this stuff in the gray area to happen. So uh, it is a good question, though, because I don't think Set Blatter, Wanted this tournament to be in Qatar, right. and yet it got voted that way. And uh, it's a it's a real relic, I guess, of an era of FIFA. As as shady as FIFA has been over the years, it was at its shadiest in 2010, with a bunch of executive committee members who voted for those World Cups in Russia and Qatar, who are now no, no longer a part of it because they got pushed out uh, for various misdeeds and improper behavior.
3: Wow, and Russia and Qatar back to back. I mean, it, it also it limits the kind of caravan mass uh, gathering feel that we saw in Brazil. I mean, getting to Russia is you know is tough enough given the international situation. Getting to Qatar, I mean, I, I'm not even sure how that's going to happen or what that's even going to look like. Have you thought about yeah. that at all? Like, what's it going to look like on a street level in Qatar? Well,
5: I went to Qatar for a story in the magazine. Uh, about a year and a half ago. And I will say this. Like, there's a lot of reasons to, t- to argue that Qatar should not have the World Cup. One of them is not, to me, the size of the country. To me, that's actually kind of convenient. If you get over there and you don't, like in Brazil, you know, the amount of travel we had to do last year and fans was, was a lot and probably a little too much. Um, uh, but you know in Qatar, you can stay in the same bed every night and, and see all the games going on. In and of itself, having these games take place in 80-degree temperatures instead of 120-degree mm-hmm. temperatures, that's probably an upgrade. Um, you know, those are the reasons to not have the tournament there. Now, the reasons that there are still exist, terrible labor situation with a lot mm-hmm. of migrant workers, thousands dying potentially over the next several years, uh, and I don't think people really cares much about that. They mm-hmm. don't really seem... Uh there's no way that Qatar is going to lose the World Cup for that reason, which is obviously
3: a shame. Yeah, hell of a statement in and of itself. And I actually, I wonder if we're going to see a series of public statements by the Qatari government about the labor situation, if that's something uh, that that we can look forward to. And ideally, that would mean a better working situation with the spotlight on them so brightly. And it's a, well, maybe and, and a bit that's optimistic. A good
5: question. Yeah, I mean, like there's been a lot of pressure against, uh, you know, from certain global groups uh, against Qatar to to really use this opportunity and this attention to change the kafala system. Mm -hmm. But so far, there haven't been any big, significant changes to Mm -hmm. that. Uh, And he has kind of paid lip service so far, you know, having a committee look into labor conditions. But I, I don't think they have any power to do anything, you know, to force Qatar to do this. So you certainly have to hope in the next few years, sooner rather than later, that the Qatari royal family take some real steps
3: to, to make things better. Now, speaking of labor situations, the reason why I was first really wanted to get you on the program before you dropped this uh, megaton bomb of a, of a news break on us yesterday was to talk about the labor situation in MLS, which is a story mm-hmm. that's just gathering a ton of steam right now. Uh, what do you see happening in MLS? Are we looking at a strike in Major League Soccer?
5: Well, right now, it looks like there could be one. Uh, so the collective bargaining agreement ran out. Uh, the players say that they will train with their team. Uh, basically, the, the effective deadline is the start of the season on March 6th. And the players say, if we don't get free agency within MLS, we will strike. We will not play to start the season. And the league doesn't want to move on that at all. Uh, hasn't tried to find the middle ground. Uh, you know, this is a situation where, uh, if you finish your contract as a player in MLS, uh, your rights in MLS are still owned by that same team. Mm. And so it's, it's kind of a crazy situation, but uh, the court upheld uh, that uh, when the players brought a case against MLS several years ago. Uh, and the idea being that supposedly um, if you are a free agent to join any other league in the world, but It's you know, it only seems to apply to players. You have a GM like Garth Lagerway, terrific GM in MLS, finished his contract and was able to choose in this past off season from three shooters within the league and sign a contract with Seattle. That's the way it should be for the players.
3: Now, you should tell me if my read on this is wrong, but it seems to me, based on all the comments I was looking up, particularly star players, players with real cultural cachet, uh, that the players are very united, that they are, are willing to go to the mattresses on this if they can't get free agency and a raise in minimum salaries. Is that your read on it as well, or how, or how do you think this is going to shake out?
5: So far from public statements, that's the case. And granted, you're not going to have any players say, publicly, I'm not going to be united with these guys. Now, in my reporting recently this week, I talked to a team exec who said he expects some of the highly paid foreign players, especially those who've just arrived this year last, to want their salaries and want their paychecks. And and that, that really could be an issue to threaten unity on the player side. If you're uh, a highly paid foreign player Uh, who has just come over, you may not have as much of a a stake or an interest in the long-term security of the rank-and-file American player. Wow. So that's going to be a big test, I think, for the union.
3: Wow. Well, I can't wait to see how this falls out. Grant Wall, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on the scoop, man. We'll see where this goes.
5: Always a pleasure. Take care, Dave.
3: That was Grant Wall, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this to wrap up the show.
1: Dave Zirin will continue with Edge of Sports Radio after the break. Edge of Sports Radio returns. Here's Dave Zirin.
3: Boom, we are back here on Edge of Sports Radio. Coach Kevin McNutt, me, Mark Barry, wrapping up the show. Mm -hmm. Me, Mark, throwing it to you right away. I mean, look, I, I want the NFL to just rot on a vine this off season what? and let no. the world get a sense of perspective not, that there are other sports out there. It doesn't die. It doesn't die. It's, it's all year. Oh, God, that, that's, that's such a horrific comment yeah. about this country, but <laughs> anything— uh catch your eye this last week cuz I know that that's where your head is man.
0: Well, I one we haven't talked about Richie Incognito getting another job in the NFL.
3: Yep, Richie Incognito getting back, signed by Buffalo. Back
0: with the uh, Rex Ryan, uh signed him said that he wanted to build a bully uh in Buffalo and then he went and signed a bully. So, yeah, we
3: we might even have to talk about that yeah. next week cuz there's something about that that actually makes me really angry. I know, I'm
0: re- I'm really upset about it actually. Yeah. Go. I I, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what has changed between last year when, when no one wanted to touch him at, a, at all and this time where, he, for some reason, when there's an absence of uh, things happening in the sports world, you need to draw attention to Richie Incognito by giving him this second chance. Yeah, I don't think and, he's worth and it's it. really he's like
3: his fifth chance, his sixth chance. Absolutely. I mean, it's like the idea that this is his second chance, you would have to believe only if you believe in a fictional account of what his professional and college career has been. What yeah. else?
0: I, I mean, I kind of hope also the Bears sign. They, the Bears have met with Josh McCown, and they may be thinking about starting like restarting this whole, like, did we pick My the wrong God. quarterback kind you of thing. You know what? We might talk more about the Chicago Bears on this show yeah. than any show outside of Could Chicago. <laughs> I mean, if somebody wants to trade for Jay Cutler, I, I'll, I'll sign it off
3: today. If You'll sign do it, it off? Yeah, that's good That's fine. Let's we'll start over. <laughs> Someone get Mark his magic pen. And, Coach, real quick to you, Richard Kent, did you like his final four picks?
2: It was it was chalk. I mean, uh, Gonzaga. I think Gonzaga's is not chalk. They But when they've never made the one. Final Four. I know. There. I know. I know. That would but be I'm a just huge story <laughs> if, after
3: all these years of people picking Gonzaga to finally break through <laughs> I know, I know. the Dan Dickow years, the Casey Calvert years. I mean, you can go down the <laughs> list: Adam, Adam Morrison years. Adam Morrison, yeah. Every time, yeah. <laughs> and it's like this is the year. It doesn't happen. No. If this is the time, it does. That would be a big story. I just
2: want Kentucky to go down by anybody.
3: By all means (laughs) necessary. (laughs) No, I hear you big time. Hey, for Dan Baker, for Coach Kevin McNutt, for me, Mark Barry, I'm Dave Zirin. Follow us at Edge of Sports. We are out of here. Peace.
1: Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Tune in next week and go to edgeofsports.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early,